Hello and welcome to Plan Francisco, the new podcast that interviews the best and brightest financial planning professionals in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm your host, Maxwell Schmitz. I need a plan, a magic key. So could you, for the audience, just describe in your own words what it is that you do? So I'm a financial planner um, here in the Bay Area. We work mostly with uh, young professionals, folks who are looking to retire, and we're their all-encompassing financial advisor. So anything that they want financial advice on, whether it be, uh, you know, how much house can I buy? How do I send my kids to college? How much money do I need to retire? And how much can I spend in retirement? Those are all questions we answer. And anything that comes up, we are on call to help our clients year-round. And as you've blossomed in this industry, um, it sounds like you've taken on kind of a new role, too. Or maybe not a new role, necessarily, but one that encompasses a little bit more than uh, the role that you started. Yeah, it's a th- I think it's a thing that it's not talked about nearly as much as it should be talked about. So whenever you're running any business at all, not just not just this financial services business, but any business at all, what happens? You know that you want to go out and you're the entrepreneur and you want to build this business. Mm-hmm. And so what do you do? You become really good at uh, the technicals behind that business. So you become, you know, you're a technician mm-hmm. as a some folks might call it. You're the technician in the business, but you're also the entrepreneur who's trying to grow it and move it forward. Mm-hmm. So those are the, typically the two hats that people are really uh, they're wearing whenever they start a new business. Well, then what happens? Let's say you're a really good entrepreneur and you grow the thing like you originally planned to. Well, then you get busy and you get more clients or more business and you need help and you have to hire somebody. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, you have a third hat to wear and you are a manager. Mm -hmm. Most people forget about this hat and it wasn't in the training book, it wasn't in the it wasn't in the manual, but they're a manager. And what even technicians a lot of the times forget about that second hat too, let alone the this third one. But yeah, sorry. I think you're right. I think um (laughs) that's actually a good point. So you uh you're a manager all of a sudden and whether you like it or not, you are responsible for the people that you bring in, making sure that they are catered to, making sure that they have money now because you have to pay them, Mm -hmm. making sure that they are satisfied in the workplace. And for most people, the definition of being satisfied in the workplace is working towards something. And if you get a young person or any driven person in the seat that you hired for, the reality is they want to move forward and they want to learn and they want to grow and they might want to be you one day. They want to grow into running the firm or running, owning the business or something like that. They, mm-hmm. they want to grow. So you, the manager is the person responsible for putting you in the seat, but also making sure that you're comfortable on your way up. And they should be helping you on your way up and developing you into the professional you want to be. I love that. I love that. So... Let's talk a little bit more about the entrepreneurship role as well. I mean, we're looking at, you know, that that's going back to that second hat, I guess. What sort of um, concepts and philosophies do you think a successful entrepreneur is going to bring to the table? Yeah, I 
I can't even speak so eloquently because I'm, I wouldn't say that I'm an entrepreneur by, by heart. I think I'm, I think I'm more of the manager by heart just because I'm like a big brother and like, those are the things that I like to do. But from afar, what have I seen? In my opinion, it looks like those who are entrepreneurs have more of the, uh, not so much the dreamer, but they are the visionary sort of personality type, and they are the ones who have to think about the next step. They are the ones who have to think about how do we grow, you know, how do we grow and make sure the systems are in place for everybody to be happy, mm-hmm. and they have to move the thing forward. So the closest thing that I get to being an entrepreneur in my role is really making sure that the systems are set up so that everybody involved in the system is has all the resources they need they're catered to and everybody can sort of grow responsibly what is what is your definition of entrepreneurship uh for me i i think it really comes down to marketing and and building um just that business development role and so i think it's interesting to hear your perspective as fostering that management side more than the get the word out there side which is sort of where I've come from in the business, you know, so, and it's probably certain, you could say there's been a neglect on my side in terms of the management. So maybe I'm thinking about it all (laughs) wrong too. I'm learning a lot today, just sitting here with you. So, um, you know, it's, it's definitely, I think it's fluid, you know, and it's interesting because we're, we both are, I kind of view this term as like an entrepreneur. So we're both in established businesses, trying to make industry change you know mm-hmm. and and um i think with what you're doing and the management side is really eye-opening to a lot of people in the financial planning community and i think it, there's even an audience there on a broader scale um whereas you know we're trying to just develop systems to kind of catch up uh, yeah. our industry <laughs> yeah <laughs> so on else. your side and your business what are some of the tools and sort of things you're trying to innovate to, to move forward uh we've essentially we we tried to coin the first e application system on the DI side. So, you know, certainly there are some carriers that have um, that have had e application technology in their life insurance division or things like that. But really, nobody was doing it on the disability insurance side. So we we established that it's kind of like an agnostic, a carrier agnostic app that people could use or with their applicants or just send the link directly to their applicants so that they are offloading that part of the job. Um, to an applicant who has to answer the questions anyways. So it was pretty obvious to us that that was going to be, you know, uh, a necessary point for digital natives who are coming up and earning an income that needed to be insured. Um, And then, you know, from there, you know, there's all different sorts of levels. So you think about just the idea of of some insurances, it's just kind of like a black box where you have to like find the right person who doesn't always even write that type of insurance. Um, you don't even know if it's necessary for you, so you don't even know if you're asking the right questions about it in the first place. And then once you find somebody who says, yeah, I do that, then it's like, all right, well, give me like 24 to 36 hours to get a quote out to you, and you don't really know what goes into that process. So we're just trying to like open all that up and make it a lot more transparent. So we're developing quoting systems that people can use on their own. Um, And then, of course, the app intake is going to be a huge portion of that as well as you know, just e-delivery systems and kind of online monitoring so that people have the case set. It's stuff that really needs, it's ubiquitous in virtually every other industry. Yeah, so I mean, we've got systems that we're building out. It's all fresh, it's all pretty new and shiny, but um, you know, I, there's still a lot of established pieces of the industry though that I think need to be um, 
shaken to their core. And that includes like a partnership track, especially in the insurance world where we're seeing so much change and it's really hard to bring new people into that side of the business. Um, whereas I think with investment advisory firms, there's still kind of a sexiness. There's an attraction for young people, if I'm right. not mistaken. I mean, you're yeah, here. Yeah. And- yes. I don't know how it works in, in your world, how you essentially move up. You know, I know you worked you know, you're working your way up in a family business and I don't know what it looks like to the next step and I don't know how you progress, but I can speak to my world. Yeah. And the financial, what, that, what does that track look like for you? So in the financial advice world, uh, what, you're, what you're seeing more these days is something that's, it's akin to what they're doing in either like the accounting world or really a attorney, yeah. like legal world where the goal is basically as soon as you sit down on day one to become a partner. And so you don't really know what that means. You just know that you want to be a partner one day and I'm going to work hard. And once I make partner, I'm going to, I'm just going to be successful. And that's my definition of success. So a lot of people now in this, in this world that I'm in now, young people are sitting down and they're saying, okay, I want to be a partner one day. I want to be uh, an owner. And you don't really know what it means. It's, it's kind of like anything when you're when you're young and sort of looking up into the world. Like I want to be successful in some way, so I'm just gonna aim at some sort of shining star. So uh, for us, we're we're starting to have more young people uh, work their way up into established firms, and whenever they're ready, whenever they are partnership ready, they're gonna be. They're going to be allowed to to buy in essentially. Mm-hmm. Partnership is the thing that I think people don't think about when you're young. Partnership means ownership, and mm-hmm. when we say ownership, we mean equity ownership, meaning you actually own the thing or part of the thing. So partnership just means ownership, and the thing is worth something. Mm-hmm. Kind of like a house, kind of like any other large purchase that retains value, uh, it costs stuff. Mm-hmm. And it might not be cheap either. Mm-hmm. And so actually becoming a partner just means that now the door is open to where if you want to buy in, you can buy in. So you actually maybe made less money <laughs> whenever you became a partner because you gave them your money because you bought something. Right. Yeah. Exchange. That's interesting. So you're bring it to the legal world a little bit. I mean, I feel like it's not totally uncommon to see, or if you go to like a, an attorney's website or something, you see like 15 to 20 partners at a firm or something. Yeah. You know? Of course, it's got three to four names on it anyways. It's ridiculous. But, but there's so many people who are partners. Does even like the smallest slice of equity mean that you are a partner? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So I think the answer is yes. So like if you own... of the company if you own a half a share you're a partner and if the person if another person owns uh, 90% of the company they're also a partner so anywhere from this basically zero to a hundred if you have any slice of the pie you are a partner okay I like that that's good good to get that clarity so you guys if I'm not mistaken you guys are on you're on the partnership track right now is it really easy to just kind of slice that pie or is there a little yeah. bit more behind the scenes stuff yeah, that needs to happen? I'm smiling because it's extremely, ex- extremely complicated, um, at least for us. It's our first time doing it. So what needs to happen? The, 
the owner of the firm, there's typically a 100% owner of the firm, maybe there's a few partners or so, they have to essentially get to the point where they say, all right, I am willing to sell some of my business. Mm -hmm. That's all they're saying. That's all partnership means. It's I'm willing to sell some of my pie to this person who's really worked their way up. And if I want to keep them and keep them motivated and let them feel like they're really permanently a part of this team and you know we're really going to commit to this, I'm going to let them buy some of my pie. Mm. I'm going to let them buy some of my uh, some of my business. So that's the first thing, the first major hurdle that I think a lot of driven people hit is that they work their way up and they're in organizations and they're doing a really, really good job. And then whoever is the owner of the pie is not interested in selling any portion of their pie. Mm-hmm. Why do that? Mm-hmm. Profits are nice. I'm going to keep 100% of my profits because mm-hmm. it's my business. My My name is on the door. Why do you want this anyways? When I'm ready to retire, I'll sell it to you then, but I'm not interested in doing it mm-hmm. now. So that's the first hurdle that a lot of people hit, and that's that can be harmful in a few different ways, but it's mainly harmful for the person who's trying to work their way up, and they just hit a ceiling. There is nowhere to go up anymore. Um, they can help laterally. They can help below. They can help build whatever below, but... Hmm. they've hit their ceiling effectively. Um, so that's that's one big thing. And so let's say that the owner's like, you know what, I am ready to, I will sell some of my pie. I will give you some of my pie. Then they have to decide, well, how much? Right. That's the first thing. Uh, and because, how much the other party can afford possibly too, right? Right, because the reality is they might need a lot of the money that the business pays them, you know, oh, I see. they might need all of or most of the profits that the business is is paying. That's it's their income. It's mm-hmm. it's their it's their livelihood, surviving on the profits of the business. So every percentage that they want to sell away to somebody else is less money that they have in in their pockets. Now that said, it's a it's a purchase. It's typically a, a buy. So you know they're not uh, they're still coming out on top for the most part but their future rights to that portion that they just sold is gone they don't have access to those those profits any anymore so they've cashed out um so what what happens next they decide all right well i think my i think my business is worth this much so there's a bunch of ways you can get a valuation done but you you go out and you get a valuation done you might have to pay for that, so that's yep. the first cost that happens. But let's say you do some sort of back of the envelope uh, approach. Um, so then the value, the value of the business is worth something. In our industry, a really common way to value a business is based on well, it's really every business based on the money that the business makes, some percent, some multiple of the revenue. Hmm. So in our world, it's really common, right around right around two times the annual revenue hmm. of the business, that's the valuation. Okay. So if the business makes $100,000 in a year in gross revenue, simple rule of thumb, two times the revenue for the year, that's a $200,000 business okay. on the street. So you can go out and, you know what, I'm ready to sell my business two times. Now, it's never... It's never typically two times. It's plus or minus that. You know, it depends how sticky the dollars are. The more sticky the dollars are, the higher valuation you can get. If you have a transactional business 
where I just sell uh, products, I sell annuities mm-hmm. or whatever my tool is, and I'm not even getting any trailers from that. If it's if it's just like a one one time transaction business, the lower the valuation will be. The closer to one times annual revenue right. it, it will be. We and, see that a lot in the insurance space. It's a little, definitely trends a little closer to one times, but I could see the stickiness being a little bit more of a factor. What it. are what are numbers you've seen before in your world? It's all kind of hypothetical. Um, at, for me, at least, you know, I've had some of these conversations. A lot of people don't like to show their hand on this stuff, but just in the few workshops and things I've attended, it sounds like maybe that one and a half times is kind of the the, the um, sweet spot for an insurance agency where things are much more transactional. I think that changes a little bit if it's like a health insurance operation where, you know, there's a big renewal stream, you're constantly servicing the clients, they're your customers, mm-hmm. as opposed to just, you know, your, your um, you know, one, one-time applicant or something at like a life insurance agency or what have you. Right, 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 right. But, but yeah. you guys are, I mean, you guys are super hands-on with your clients and obviously, you know, that results in a recurring stream of revenue. Yeah, we're, we're in the business of a majority of our income most, not all, but most of our income is really in sort of an annual, call it an annual retainer. We don't call it a retainer. It's just like an ongoing fee that basically never ends until they mm-hmm. tell us that they don't want to work with us anymore. But mm-hmm. until that point, the the revenue is pretty sticky. It's yeah. not going anywhere until they tell us to turn it off. So so most of the time, the the multiples in our field are pretty... They're pretty strong, so that's good. So that's how nice. you come up with a valuation for Got the most it. part. Good to know. Yep. And then once you have the valuation and you and then the person has decided how much of their equity they're willing to sell you, now you have to pay for it. And sometimes these businesses are really, really big. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the valuations are really, really high. <laughs> and if you're like a 30-year-old who's, you know, just trying to... Just paid for a big wedding. Just, and <laughs> trying to, yeah. Just trying to make it all work. Um, you know, you might not have a hundred thousand dollars to to do it to sure. to make this purchase. So, two things happen. Number one, uh, let's say that um, I'm in a business. I work at a firm that the valuation is a hundred thousand dollars, and the firm's principal, the firm's owner, is like. Uh, Brian, I'm gonna sell you 10% of my pie because I, I really think you got the got the guts. So I'm I'm gonna, you know, let, let's make this official. Let's let's get married in business paper, and I'm gonna sell you some of my, some of my equity, and we're gonna be partners. And I say, cool, all right, uh, hundred thousand dollar business, ten uh, percent of that. So I gotta come up with ten thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars. Well. I let's say I don't have ten thousand dollars. I just, I just put all my money into my new house, and I just got married, and you know I got maybe I got some other student loans or something like that, and I I don't have ten thousand bucks. What do I do? Well, the reality is most of the people are not paying lump sum ten thousand dollar checks. It's just not happening. Okay, good. And maybe I should have used a more dramatic number. Um, no, but I think that, yeah, it stands to reason. Most people are not doing that. Most people are not doing that. Add a zero. Um, they're not doing that for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's typically a large amount of money. Mm-hmm. 
And number two, the reality is the owner of the equity itself, the firm owner, doesn't really want to realize if this was a $100,000 right. purchase, they don't – from a tax perspective, right. they don't want to just accept uh, all this you know, this money that's going to be taxable. Like, no, no, no. I don't yeah. want that. How can we spread it out? Sure. How can we spread out this income? So I say, all right, well, that's good because I didn't have the money in the first place. <laughs> but yeah, I'm just looking out for your tax line. That's really what right. – that's why I couldn't – that's all why I didn't want to pay you the money. All for you. I – yeah, I just I'm looking out for your tax bill. So let me let me spread out my payments somehow. So what do we do? Um, you want to you want to have the agreement to where the ten percent, boom, on the day the shares were transferred. Okay. So how do I do that? Well, how do you buy a house mm-hmm. where you own the house the next day? Well, you take out a loan. Right. You do some sort of down payment, mm-hmm. and that down payment will be taxable to the person. But the rest is it's going to be basically a payment plan. Mm-hmm. It's it's a payment plan. Um, you're taking out a loan. You're doing a down payment and you're taking out a loan. Mm-hmm. The most common arrangements I've seen are people uh, are putting down anywhere from uh, zero to twenty percent. I see a ten percent down payment as being pretty pretty standard. It kind of fluctuates from there. But let's say I I put down ten percent and that's the check that I write. I write I write a a 10% check. Okay. That's my down payment. Okay, well where's my loan come from? Cuz I had to I had to I needed a loan for $9,000. Where am I going to get this loan? Mm-hmm. Two ways you can get the loan. You can go onto the private market. There's a couple banks out there that are willing to lend to this specific situation. In my world, some of the big players are Live Oak Bank. There's another there's a couple other Agencies, I think DeVoe and company, they are a valuation company, but they see how common this is. So they made uh-huh. an arm <laughs> for financing. So you've got nice. like DeVoe Capital or whatever they are. Right. So they lend to people like me who need 9,000 bucks. Right. So I don't have 9,000 bucks. Right. And I come up with – so that's the way. The traditional financing is the first route. Mm-hmm. Um, the other route, which I actually see way more often, is seller financing. I'm so wondering if there's an internal way to do this. There is, and it's quite simply just a a note between me and the person selling me uh, the shares, and I've I owe them money. Mm-hmm. And typically, what you see is some range between like a six to ten year note, you know. So call it a a seven year note. Mm-hmm. And how does the note get paid back? Well, typically, it's uh, annual payments. Well, well, wouldn't you know it? When are these annual payments due on the loan? Oh, look, they're due right around when profit distributions are about to be sent out. Uh-huh. So a lot uh-huh. of the times what they'll do is they'll say, all right, well, Brian, don't pay me any money. Let's just wait till the profit distributions are paid. And instead of paying you, we'll, we'll pay this lo- note off. Got it. And if there's anything extra, if the business grew, then you get the rest of the profit distribution and you'll see it in your, in your K-1. But o- other than that, it's... Mm. It's no – you don't have to write more checks. You're an owner now, so the profits of the business should theoretically – if you stretch out the loan – if you find the right sweet spot for how long to make the, the note, the loan, mm-hmm. then the profit distribution should on paper actually satisfy the note and hopefully there's a little bit extra at, at the end. Gotcha. That's the most common way so I've seen who it. who pays tax on that then? It's, it's uh, the same person receiving the money, so okay. the – The seller. The seller, okay. it's just stretched out over the course. It's like slowly, you're slowly taxed. You're, you're, 
it's stretched out basically. Gotcha. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Very cool. So that seven year horizon. So let's say that ten thousand dollars that you or I guess you paid ten percent up front. So now we got nine thousand that you've you are set to pay over the next seven years. Um, does that number stay static or does it is there any sort of um, I don't know like an APR kind of situation where you're oh good point sort of so there is you have to assign a rate it's a loan it so is, you have okay. you have to assign a loan uh, a loan rates um, fortunately uh, you can you can kind of do whatever rate you want mm-hmm. as long as it's above like the IRS like minimums gotcha so wow <laughs> the applicable the AFR rates applicable federal rates that they set by the IRS which say that all right well for 7 year loans this is the lowest you can possibly do it or else it's a gift so mm-hmm. you do you can start there and obviously they can they can choose a higher rate if they want to make a few bucks on it but if it's like a close a close office, they're not trying to nickel and dime you. They'll choose a pretty low rate for you. So maybe 2 or 3% right now hmm. for this midterm range loan is kind of what you'll see. But okay. but still, like that that rate was calculated on the front end. You know, $9,000, here's my rate. Mm-hmm. Here's what your payments are going to be. It's like any other amortization schedule. Mm-hmm. So the note stays fixed kind of like your mortgage payment it stays fixed it all it all stays fixed um what you're hoping for is that the profits are growing over those years mm-hmm. and it you know it can definitely satisfy the loan and you'll have a little bit extra at the at the end hopefully for a nice little bonus this is a cool strategy thanks for open up opening up the hood on this i feel like a lot of people are going to get some good um you know candid advice from from this uh, yeah, episode. I mean that's like the that's like the math how the math works and such. Yeah, you know that's different also than you know how do you draw up the papers because the right. papers have to get written up. Too. There's a buy sell agreement that needs to get written up that agree that says that hey these shares are going to get sold to this person and if something happens to them, you know what happens? How do you break up? You know because it's kind of like a marriage with like very clear. Sets of instructions, honestly. Right. Or if something happens to the partner, something happens, then you are dealing with his with his marriage. If if, <laughs> if death or disability happens, yeah. what happens to the shares? Can they get out? So there's always. That's why you have to call on an attorney, unfortunately, to pay them the big bucks because there has to be a backup plan. There has to be the what ifs, and that's why the attorneys come in and. You know that can take a lot of time to mm-hmm. to go over. That can be that can be a few thousand to you know five thousand dollars to just create these documents. So the buy sells the big one. Um, what a lot of people do also, just because they're looking at it, they'll make the they'll rewrite the contingency plan for the business. You know what's going to happen. You know is this new partner are they responsible for buying the business if I get hit by a car like. Mm-hmm. Is it the partner now or is it still somebody else? So you typically revisit all that and then you know, maybe you're going to want to buy some life insurance if you are on the hook to buy the business. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a common thing too. And, um, so there's a few moving parts and there's, some money, there's money spent for the sake of hopefully making more money. But it's, um, it can be a costly endeavor just to do, just to have a small percentage of a, of a business to make quote unquote partner it's not quite as sexy as we kind of all thought it was at first <laughs> sure so are you doing advising like this with any of your clients too or are you are you just trying to better the industry purely 
Yeah, I don't. I think you know this comes. We have a lot of business owner clients, and they will they will hire us when they're starting to think about okay, I'm ready to retire. I'm ready to start to get some of this equity out of my business. I I need it to survive in my retirement years. Quite frankly, so it's an asset. Sure. It's their largest asset for the most part. You know, it's not like their their house they're gonna live in. They don't expect the toaster to pay them dividends. It's like <laughs> they don't. The house is different. It's a large piece of equity, especially in the Bay Area. But they they're not really banking on that to live on. They're banking on this business that they've sunken all their energy into for the past twenty thirty years. That is their retirement plan. So how do I get? How do I extract the value out of my business? And for the most part, it is a very similar process. Mm. It is the first thing you have to do is who is going to buy my business? Mm. Who are these people? And what we find with most of our business owner clients is that they don't really know. Mm. Um, You rarely have somebody who's ready to go from zero to 100 Mm -hmm. to buy a million dollar business. Mm. It just... It rarely happens that way. So what you typically have to do is start to uh, hold the carrot over some very driven person and say, hey, like I'll sell you some equity. This will be a nice trial run. Mm-hmm. See how it goes. We'll keep working your way up in the company, and this will be a gradual process. And you know that 10% that I sold you earlier, you know, after another year, see how it goes. Maybe we'll do another tranche. Sure. And maybe yeah. we'll do a bigger tranche the next time whenever you're really serious about this. Yeah, that's cool. And maybe we actually start to get a couple owners because now the business is really worth a ton of money. And I see that it's out of your budget and your desire. So maybe we'll get a couple partners in here and mm-hmm. you guys will both buy the business from me. Mm-hmm. And they'll both have the same arrangements. They'll both have this graduated buy-in schedule. Okay. And now the business owner is allowed to extract the value over time. And that means that... They don't have to segue out immediately and go straight to retirement. They can slowly phase out, which is probably what they want to do in the first place because they don't actually know what they're going to do in retirement. They just know they're supposed to start thinking about it. So there's a lot of similarities. Yeah, It's a lot of coaching that we do where we, you know, me and my boss will be We'll be giving advice to a business owner client going through succession plan, and we kind of look at each other like, oh, we just did that. <laughs> <laughs> Little code there. It's the same idea. So, so it does come up sometimes. Well, and I love this. I love that you guys are having such an open and honest conversation about this because, I mean, it's so applicable in the financial planning world. I think what we've seen more often than not, and I guess this is across the board with a lot of other advisory work like legal as well, where you know somebody comes in and works for an agency or an advisory firm for maybe three to four years, and then they bounce. You know they're right. onto the next thing. They cut their teeth. They did whatever, and then they left. Um, and there's just so much wastage in that process. So I'm glad to see that you know at least the people that you're working with here um, had the foresight to understand that. Wow, we actually have invested a lot into this guy, yeah. and it would behoove us to give up a, a you know certain amount of shares. To keep them on board and, and, and create that that uh, you know recurring buy-in, if you will. Um, yeah, I, don't, I just think it's really visionary, and you know you, you don't see a lot of that happening with people who've been in the business for just a, a few years. I guess you're you're more seasoned than that, but still. yeah, but still, it's it's kind of a scary process. I think a lot of people have asked me like, you know, your boss is pretty young; he's not thinking about retirement at all anytime soon. Why is he doing this? Yeah, right. You know, what's the point? And I think my first gut, re- gut reaction was like, I don't know, like, why is he doing this? But, you know, it's a good opportunity, so I'm going to move forward. But the reality is, 
it's back to those ceilings that I was describing earlier. You know, you kind of you hit a stride in your in your job, and you keep getting better at your job, and you you want to keep looking forward. You know, people like to look forward to the next to the next thing, and how can I grow? How can I get better? What's the next major leap that I can take in my career? And so sometimes selling a very small percentage of your business to somebody who's already been in the business for half a decade Mm -hmm. is a great investment for morale. It's a great investment for retention. You know that you know, you just made an employee really, really sticky. And they've actually given you money to show how loyal they are to the business, you know, but it's a very small price to pay for uh, hopefully dividends that that really pay off. So I love it. Was there anything else you wanted to hit on in this vein? I mean, between the management and the entrepreneurship and the partnership that we've sort of tracked out here? Uh, I th- I think that I think that you are doing you are in a unique position to where uh, you're in a family business and the dynamics are far and wide and if you're going to make something new it's going to be a lot different than how uh, your your father and mother have done it and it's a lot right. different <laughs> yes a lot different than how you know the the original OG grandpa how he did it's going to be a lot different <laughs> and you know I'm not I'm not sure I'm interested in hearing what what grandson's got to say about this what does he know right. you know I bet that's I bet that's really hard so like just maybe briefly like how do you institute change in a system that's been around for for so long it's I don't I'm I'm just kind of hesitant to answer the question one way because my mind's going all over the place on this. I mean, just to back up a little bit and look at the big picture, you know, I'm fortunate. I think I for a lot of reasons obviously, but number one is like I'm kind of on the older side of the of this um, you know, millennial generation if you will. Um born in 87, so you know, the big wave was a couple of years after me. Um I think you might fall squarely yep. in there. That's me. And uh and so you know, just having that extra couple years, I feel like has given me a little bit of a heads up as to what the trends are and things like that. Um, and so certainly if you extend that out to, you know, how that, what the implications are for the insurance world, you know, I've been able to sort of try things being on this older end. And I, I wouldn't consider myself a digital native because so much of what I came up in was learned from a digital, in the digital realm. Um, but you know, the people who are even, you know, younger than, um, you know, in their born in the nineties and stuff, they are probably a little, even more steeped into that. So just the necessary adoption of technology, I think is the easiest route for us to kind of forge our way on the insurance side. And that's been my inclination is to just kind of, you know, learn to code and start building out all these different systems. And, and, um, and that's been helpful to a degree you know we're still primarily driven though by baby boomer activity so you know you have to kind of play both sides in this in this space where we are um i don't think we're going to be moving to a fee only you know fiduciary model anytime soon um talking about the insurance industry as a whole i would love to see that one day but until that happens you know we're kind of stuck in this mode of app count and you know commission-based processing and you know it can be a little torturous to try to hit those numbers as they go up every year in a flat industry um so you know we're, we're always looking at, at other ways to to kind of 
um, to you know forge ahead and and be the pioneers. But I think it really comes down to um, scalability in our business because I, I think we were talking a little bit before uh, we went on the mic. We were discussing how a lot of insurance agencies have just kind of stopped hiring and there's just it's hard to get new young people into this business and so that was the traditional mode of how we grew was this um you know broad network of agents we probably had like 2500 agents that were working with us at one point writing disability insurance and and long-term care insurance um, through our direct contracts with the carriers but as those agencies have kind of shriveled up a little bit, and those there's just massive contraction on the health insurance um, bucket for sure, and then the life insurance side is still, you know, it, those recruiters. I feel for them, man. That's that's hard work <laughs> trying to get people to come in and sell life insurance. But um, you know, it, it it's just an interesting way to see everything contract. Um, so what it comes down to is how do you how are you meeting more people and um, and how are you writing more or accepting more applications? And is it even worth it to be doing it for a $40 monthly premium? You know, you got to drive an hour and a half to San Jose or something to collect an app or whatever if you're going to do it the old school way. So it comes down to all these different tiny little mechanisms that you can implement to create a more scalable practice. And that's what we're trying to hit on. You know, it, it comes with that e-application system. It comes with this e-quoting or consumer directive quoting um, and you know, just kind of making that process super scalable. Yeah, I think we're just in the world of like, I need instant answers. I'm in the world right. of email. You know, I I need to be able to, you know, what do, what do I want to do? I want to email you, hey Max, I need a quote on this, 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 and what I really I want my email to act as like this instant quoting tool. Yeah. I'm just like sort of going <laughs> through you, and I'm not seeing like all this like. Uh, all right brian and then you like you go to like move the like move the rock to the side and just like you're doing all this archaic stuff i don't see any of that i mean that's just the world we live in that like i want the instant i feel like the capability should be there not that i not that i know any better i just feel like it should be there you know i can shop for now i can do instant like life insurance quotes for term life insurance you know it's not a hard quote but it's it's something and i can get those numbers almost instantly you know i guess geico and all of them are doing like basically instant i don't even know what they're doing but i know i can get term life insurance 15 minutes oh 15 (laughs) (laughs) sounds like a super bowl commercial so i uh, yeah i mean it should be instant but it's you know to the extent that you can help create that or at least like you know you can try and make a version and then maybe somebody else will see it and be like oh we can make a better version and it's just like whatever you can do to like push ahead i think is I think it's uh it's probably scary for like your probably for your your parents to see and it's like what are you doing oh, for like the carriers st- to see. Oh, they're for the, the carriers. They're the most frightened. What are you doing? <laughs> exactly. Stick with old faithful. I uh, know. But yeah. Uh, yeah, it's fun. It's fun. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for connecting today. I think we've shown a lot of value for the audience and I really appreciate your time, man. Excellent. It's, it's good to be here. Yeah. The pleasure as always. And thanks for coming to Plan Francisco. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed. Please be sure to subscribe and visit us again soon here at Plan Francisco.